Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I get to have the joy of interviewing somebody who I have followed on YouTube for, wow, now a couple years. And a fellow detection slash nose work passionate person, Jirai Dingle. Thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to talk with me and we can go back and forth and get to know each other. Yes, of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, always looking out for other dog trainers out there with a canine scent work, nose work bug, and uh, happy that we cross paths. Absolutely. Same here. The Well, I guess let's just start with this. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got to your YouTube channel. Those who don't know, it's called Dingle Days. Tell us a little bit more about that and your journey with your dog and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I hope it's uh, truly relatable because uh, I I started training with my German Shepherd dog, Disney, um, when I, I started a pet photography business in 2017. And I got my first subscription of Adobe Creative Cloud. And for those of you not in the creator space, that's just an editing suite to like make your videos and do cuts and things of that nature. And so I started posting that online really just for my family, honestly, into, hey, we have this new puppy, uh, come check out what we're doing. And I wanted a way to stimulate my dog mentally and physically. Uh, being a German Shepherd dog, you know, one of the more intelligent breeds, you definitely don't want to just stick to exercise. And while that's great, you also have to exercise their brain. And I knew that and scent work was just starting to come alive. I mean, it's super popular now, but it wasn't as popular then. Um, and, and not as many online programs or in person training sessions and things of that nature to link up with outside of the, the, the working dog space. But now it's a highly prevalent and, um, it was just a way for me to spend time with my dog. And I saw him really enjoying using his nose in such a natural way. Uh, and that's how we started back in 2017, posting videos and over time, uh, just documenting really our experience and his journey. Um, the channel has grown over 3.7 K subscribers. And I'm like, people are really tuned into this. And uh, it seemed that they sent work subject resonated with them. Um, and then that's just what we've continued over the years. And we've grown a podcast with the Dogs or People 2 podcast, bringing some folks on and talking about their training methods. And um, yeah, so that's brings us to today. It's been really inspiring, you know, for me, like you brought up the creative part of this. And I've done the same kind of journey. I was laughing when you said Adobe Creative Suite because I've had my way to that as well. Um, and I make the joke all the time now, in order to be a dog trainer, you know, back in when I first started doing it in the late 90s, you, you know, you had a phone number and you had an email address and that was kind of how people found you. Good and then deal. it grew, then it was social media. You had to have social media, email and a phone number. And then now people are like, you, you don't have a podcast? Uh, if you're a dog trainer, you don't have a podcast. Like, how is that even possible, right? <laughs> and we've been – it was actually um, kind of funny. My Facebook feed, I think it was two days ago, showed me that I had, I had my, my five-year anniversary of having the podcast. So that was pretty cool that it's been around that long. And then there's – but in that journey was finding people like yourself where I was inspired by the work that you did in the – like. 
production quality that you had and uh, the information that you shared. So in turn, you also inspired me as a dog trainer slash creator and then same kind of passionate person in the detection dog space. So, you know, the mutual uh, admiration has definitely been there for, you know, now a while. The journey you how did you first since you've been doing it for a little while how did you first find uh scent work or nose work when you were uh kind of trying to find something for disney to go do well i kind of really tried to dive deep into what his breed might be more inclined to do um i mean i didn't get a working uh line dog obviously he's just he's just a pet but for me um I wanted to do something particularly because I knew I could do the exercise thing, but what could I do mentally that he may be more inclined to success? Because I think we should definitely give our dogs a chance at success anytime we can. Um, and I, I mean, I probably just a Google search, like things to do with your dog. And I was like, uh, hips and German shepherds. Now granted his, 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 uh, lineage has been pretty clean, but I was like, I don't want to necessarily get into agility with agility with him. Um, but what else can I do with him? And then I stumbled upon scent work really just, I think I was just on the AKC website. Um, and I was like, well, this is decently easy to get started with. And, um, I hadn't even gotten into the different elements what whatsoever, really. It really just started with finding things around the house and then transitioning to, uh, some of the formal sense that we, you know, probably talked about in some of our forums. What would you say as you started this journey, you first, you found the, the information about scent work, what had been in that beginning stages, what was the hardest thing for you and Disney as you were getting going with this? Well, I think dogs are naturally inclined to search. Now, granted, different dogs are going to have varying levels of drive. I know some folks don't like the term drive, but they're going to have a different level of wanting to be interested in this. But I think the biggest thing or the, I guess the initial hurdle, if you would, or challenge was getting him to understand the game. Like, what are we doing? Um, but if you can build value, uh, to any activity that you're doing with your dog, uh, you're more inclined to, to, to have them want to come back and join you and do it again. So I knew that the foundations, particularly if this was something I was going to want to work with him over time and over the years that I would have to go slow and I would have to make it enjoyable and give him the best chance for success. So I think understanding the game, um, without getting too technical and, um, perhaps a little bit of patterning, like when I would lay out. A lot of folks start with containers and boxes. Like, why are she putting these out? Is this for me to like stump on them? Or am I supposed to like go like, cause it, he, he's curious, right? So I played to that natural curiosity. And as soon as he went over to the scent at that time, we were doing pairing, placing the, uh, the let's say the desired scent with uh, a treat or something that your dog wants. Uh, so he had to develop a positive association with that. Um, and you know, yes, or click when he's close to source, whatever, whatever your mechanism is for reinforcement. And I spent a lot of time on introducing the scent and building value to odor. So I would think for a lot of folks understanding the game, if you, I'm not competing, but if you were to get into, uh, competing, understanding the patterning and how to search the area. So you build some efficiencies, um, and, and going from there, I think the foundations in any, any type of training system are are what's most important. Yeah, it's definitely such an important thing um getting it, it's it's so important but at the same time it also almost becomes as i've watched in the years foundations becomes a trap in a sense because you 
it's the easier thing to do. A lot of times, also based on logistics, you know, a lot of people may not have a lot of areas to go search in. So they, okay, well, I'll do boxes or I'll do just insert whatever you wanted. That's an easy, you can duplicate it and you can get repetitions in. Um, how did you navigate that minefield in a way of, okay, I'm dealing with, um, I've got foundations down, but now I need to get creative because I know you shared some of that journey yourself. And then um, I think that probably, and you can talk about it, how it led to you understanding odor movement and things like that. Yeah, honestly, just talking to a lot of trainers and uh, I know different folks respond to different type of training regimens. Like we have done like classes, uh, group work as well. Um, I'm just a natural nerd and like to do a little bit of research as well. Um, but you definitely have to get out of the trap of boxes. I think I was talking to Jeremy from Family First K9, another uh, resource out there for folks who are into scent work on YouTube. And he was like, he would go, he would go to thrift stores and just pick up anything. And of course, we all have stuff around the house. So you don't think you have to go out to a thrift store. But uh, th the point he was trying to make there was he would have his dog search boxes, luggage, um, containers, different things. It's not about the boxes, right? And some folks out there, you might even have box crushers, right? Like, and that can become a an issue in, in, the, in the ring, if you would, uh, when you're competing. So like, you definitely want to get away from boxes, honestly, I think as soon as possible. Um, and have your dog search all kinds of things. Um, you know, things around the house, like, I mean, we did the remote control, we did the house keys, um, we did the scent tubes made out of PVC pipe, uh, just different things. Um, and the more um, uh, variety and I guess um, robust scent library you can give your dog and not just the scents themselves, but the environments and that becomes complicated because now you have distractions in the area and not going too fast. Um, when you talked earlier about challenges, yeah, building the foundation. And like you said, that can become a crutch. And sometimes you have to go backwards before you can go forwards. But I definitely think we didn't necessarily spend enough time in different environments. Like um, you got into talking about like how we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the movement of scent in motion or scent in motion. But, you know, that also changes uh, with, with barometric pressure or different temperatures or you know, moisture in the air. And, and I don't want to get too advanced for folks, but like all of that stuff changes the scent profile or how scent is moving. So the more um, environments you can train with your dog, and that kind of gets to like the, the how much time and frequency you're training with your dog, uh, that it's only going to give them a better library. It, it, you bring up another good point too, is there's so much information. And there's also at the same time, so much we don't know. And it can be exciting to seek out that information, but then become overwhelming because as you're sifting through the tons and tons of information out there about odor and what it can do and how it can do it, it's one of those things where we get wrapped up uh, around the what ifs, I call it. And so many times, um, whether it even be professional or sport, we get into these what ifs. Well, maybe I should do work my dog like this because of um, this condition or maybe like this. And sometimes like I, I make the joke now, we lose track of our main job. Our main job is to work the dog and read the dog, get really good at reading the dog versus getting too deep in the weeds on all the odor. It's important to know, understand odor and how it can move. But I think sometimes for some segments of the people out there doing it, it becomes so exciting to learn 
that that becomes so much to focus. And when then we lose track of reading the dog, um, how did you, you know, because like you said, you're like, just like me, a fellow, you know, dog nerd, as we call ourselves, but how did you learn to, I guess, temper the excitement of learning, which is so much fun, but then go, okay, I still have to do the one thing with Disney, which is read my dog and train the dog in a way so that it understands what it is that we're looking for, because that's a challenge in itself in that beginning stage is, for example, when it comes to the odor part of it, is my dog paying attention to the cardboard box? Is my dog paying attention to what the Q-tip? Is my dog paying attention to the actual odor? How did you or what did you do to kind of navigate in that stage how to get through and to learn my dog is now really paying attention to the target odor? Yeah, I think um, I think it kind of goes back to the whole training plan and really thinking about what your goals are. And like, are you training? I mean, it's not to say you can't train both, but scent work, uh, I think a lot of folks would agree that it's a dog-led activity. Um, and there might be things you're doing as a handler that may be, quote unquote, tipping your dog off or you're like, you know, are you searching blind or not blind? Like, do you know where the location of the hide is by perhaps working with a friend or having somebody place something out there in advance? So even you don't necessarily know off the cuff where the scent is because you might be playing to some of those biases. I noticed a lot of that earlier. I think I, I told the audience earlier that like I started off with like, you know, like a, like a photography business and video. Um, but something I leverage and we all have in our pocket is 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 filming ourselves. What am I doing and what am I doing? And what is a dog doing? Um, so so I would isolate those viewings, if you would, and sometimes look at my behaviors and what what I was doing and was I trying to lead the search or or, or was my dog leading the search? And then, you know, honing in, I think, you know, it, it's funny, like the more we talk, the more you're like spurring some of these ideas uh, when you think about what's, what's the most difficult. And honestly, r- really paying attention to the dog because he, he's given you the answer. Um, I mean, there's a certain posture when my dog is searching. There's a certain posture when he's getting close to source, you know, perhaps that the breathing is changing. Um, and then and then there's like the final behavior, if you would, or or, or the alert. Now you can get to that. It could be formal if you train it or, or whatever. But but there's something that happens naturally. And I think one thing you can do is just repetition and something we can probably all do is just record ourselves and see how your dog's behavior changes. I mean, you can do it in real time. But when you're excited, especially early on and you're like, oh, man, I want to get that really pristine down or sit or freeze or whatever you have. But there are just some natural things your dog does when they're close to order. And I think the better you can identify those things, um, I think the more efficient you're going to be in your training. And I think that just takes, unfortunately, just time and, and more experience. And I'm, I'm not 100 percent at it, uh, but I think the more time that we spend together, I can, I'm like, oh, he's on it. He's in he's in the scent cone. It, you bring up something too right there that I try to share a lot of, which is filming yourself. You know, I came up from the generation where, you know, putting your training, well, one, the ease of having video ready and available is not like it is today, clearly with every, every phone having a camera on it. Mm-hmm. But it was also, there was no outlet to share it anyway. But so therefore the motivation wasn't there to film stuff as often. So a lot of times it was just our peers watching us saying, you're doing this, you're doing that. But now with technology and everybody's phones and everything's being so easy to record. I highly recommend people to record just like you talked about, because it's amazing what you can see when you do that. You know, how many times you do something and you don't even notice that you've done that 
or you've done it consistently near odor. I share frequently, um, a lot of times I do cognition classes and that's how the, you know, looking at the dog's learning strategies and how they process information and make decisions off of that. But one of the things that comes from this is a dog will be very vigilant to what you are doing. And now that's not uncommon for most of us, but what we don't notice is that because of our dogs doing, like you said, certain things at odor, we also start doing things at odor too. And many times in those early stages, those dogs who are so good at reading humans go, oh, mom or dad likes to do this or faces where the odor is at or in- stares intently to where odor is at. So I should pay attention to over here. It's a, it's a tough thing to not fall into, especially in those early stages when it is important you know where odor is at so you can read these behaviors. But by videotaping it or, or filming yourselves, you can start seeing how much of it is the dog and how much and what are you doing when that's happening? Because you're absolutely right. There's whatever the tell is for that dog, whether either be, you know, the, the tail wag, the ears, the body tensing up, all these different things, whatever is unique to that dog, that that uncontrolled response happens when the stimulus, the odor is present. And it's got to be something that we can read that is reliable and predictable to odor. But man, in the beginning stages, those behaviors look a lot like a lot of other things too. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like dog smelling food. It looks like a dog could be smelling another dog pee or whatever it is until you get really good and you watch those videos over and over again, seeing that, oh, okay, this is probably one of the most predictable pieces to odor is when my dog does this. And just like you said, that takes a lot of time to kind of feel comfortable, I guess I would say, to go, okay, yes, I know that behavior is indicative to being my dog is working odor. And I share the reverse, which is getting really good at reading when your dog is telling you there's no odor there. Mm -hmm. Far too often we don't do enough of that. And therefore, when odor is not there, we struggle to read that. And a lot of times, uh, handlers will stay in an area for so long because it's training, there should be odor here, and we kind of get stuck in that space. And then the dog, many times, when they can't find anything, sniffing frequency increases. And then the dog, then the handler is going, oh, well, they're sniffing harder now. There must be something here. And it becomes like this little vicious circle that starts going on. Have you seen that or what's what's been your experience with that? Yeah. I mean, so much of what we're talking about is communication and trust and problem solving. Um, and I mean, these are also great things, which is why I kind of love scent work. Yes, it stimulates the dog mentally and physically and all of that stuff. But really, if if you're able to put in enough reps, this, this really helps build a great relationship with your dog because basically you're trusting the dog that like, hey, your factory capability is well beyond mine. If you think there's no scent over here, then we're moving on. And the dog needs to understand that he can have a level of, I guess, intelligent disobedience, if you would, that even if I'm like, I'm like, it's over here. Like, no, nah, mom, it's over here. You off. Like, I, I got it. Like, and you need to trust your dog. And again, I go back to like time and practice and, and looking at those videos and really just being like, you know what, just based on his like behavior and 
and whatever it is that your dog's natural uh, indication is, and of course you can shape an indication, but like his natural indication, something's going to happen, right? It's going to be some type of, some, some dog is like a twitch in the ears. Like sometimes Disney does like a little, like, it's not to say that his ears won't twitch otherwise, but like there's something that he does when like sit work. And I'm like, oh yeah, he's, he's on it. So whatever those things are, those markers for your dog, um, definitely pay attention to those things and, and let it be a dog led activity. Um, and, and check on your biases when you're looking at those videos, because you'll probably find that you're doing some things that, um, you probably should just let the dog lead with their nose, their nose. How did you navigate or what did you do? I mean, you did the videos. I I know that. What was it? Was there something in particular that helped you get better at reading your dog? Um, did you do any certain types of exercises intently with the goal being about you reading your dog and odor, or was it something that just kind of happened naturally or took time just to occur? Um, unfortunately for this one, I, I don't think I really have too much secret sauce, uh, besides time and repetition. Sorry guys. Sorry, outstations. Um, but some things that can help is, is building independence in the search, um, there's one drill, um, I mean, I'm sure people call it different things, but I sit, you search, um, whereas you're not necessarily in the search area with your dog. Um, I mean, obviously your dog has to understand a little patterning to understand like, Hey, I'm going in this particular area and I'm searching for, you know, whatever is in his older library. Um, and then having some type of indication, or even if, if that's just a look back at you, like, Hey, I think it's over here. Pay me, pay me. Um, so we've done some drills like that. I sit, you search to build some, some, some independence and like the dog's not moving because he knows that I'm going to now come into the search area and reward him at source. So it's not something where I have him come back and perhaps he's, and this, this is different, right? However you train your dog, but I'm going to source. So he knows the reason he's getting rewarded is because he stayed at source odor. So that's a drill uh, that we've done. That's, that's helped as well. Yeah. It's you, you're bringing up some really good points there, which is the, there's a lot of different ways to communicate to the dog what's desired um, and the importance of odor and also in many cases the importance of reward where that's at you know um, myself and Michael Ellis will have uh, some stuff coming up in the future where we're going to talk about different things in detection and all of them have pros and cons so there is no perfect one like you said there's no secret sauce there's it's going to be what works best for this dog team. Um, and reward location is important, especially in the beginning. You know, of course, we want to make that association. Hey, do this here. Odor is important. So I want to do a lot of rewarding. And even uh, everything I do in the very beginning stages, reward is happening where odor is at. Um, there's different ways to communicate that. Like we talked about, you mentioned simultaneous conditioning where we're pairing it. There's also delayed conditioning, which is highly effective. We, I call it odor addiction where they're in odor and then the experience happens. So reward happens when they're in odor, but they're not together. And then that link of, Ooh, there's the thing leads to the desired experience of what reward brings to them. And for the dogs, it could be whether it's toy or food or whatever it is. That experience. So the the analogy I make quite often is it you know and I use because I'm, I'm a former cop with the drug dog world. Well, I'll say when you have somebody who's addicted to something, let's just say in this case, I'll use heroin as an example. Mm-hmm. Is the person addicted to the heroin or the experience the heroin gives them? 
And of course, it's the experience that comes from the heroin. So what I try to show them through with delayed conditioning aspects with many dogs, this is a very uh, experience that they get is, ooh, there's the odor. And soon as I'm in odor, I will probably get this experience, which will be the reward item, whatever that is. So if it's food, it's food. If it's toy, it's toy. But just having that like two-second delay links them, which this is where the addict part comes in. They're addicted to finding the thing because then that predicts get them getting the reward. Um, but the pairing also works. We just have to be aware with some dogs, the overshadowing effect of the reward item becoming more valuable than the odor. That's not always the case. Some dogs are really good at understanding the difference. Some dogs, they, that two-second delay is a really good thing for them. Um, and like you said, too, when you know some people really like a trained final response, some people, like you said, are very happy with, hey, mom, look, I'm, I found something. You know, here I'm looking at you. Pay me. So the important part is whatever that behavior is, it's predictable and reliable, Then you, you, and you can read that run with whatever works the most as long as the important part is you know what those things mean um the gray areas is where we run into the issues um where we start going well is it i'm, I'm not sure and I, I look at a lot of that comes from going too fast when we have a distractor odor present and maybe the dog is already have has searches let's say numerous boxes or numerous things. And the very first time we introduce a non-target odor or distracting odor into that search problem, the dog acknowledges it because it's the other thing that doesn't belong. And Mm -hmm. in the training all the way up to now, the only thing that didn't belong was target odor. So therefore, behaviors look very similar. Handlers have a harder time reading between the two. Sometimes how we put that that non-target odor in the space is also hidden so there's a context generalization. The dog's going, oh, this is just like the other thing. I should probably find this. Mm-hmm. Or the other part is if we've already maybe done two or three odors. So the dog's database now says, oh, things that don't belong in a space are relevant because I've been paid frequently for this context. So to navigate that, there's exercises like you mentioned I start off with in a game where the non-target thing is out in the open. It just doesn't it doesn't belong, but it's not hidden. Mm-hmm. And that helps one the handler one sees it. Two, the dog's like, well, the context is isn't the same, but this thing doesn't belong, but it's not hidden, so I'll move on. Or it becomes easier to move on. And again, the handler seeing it knows, okay, I know that's not what we're looking for. That's a distractor. And and they get better at it. Even if I tell a handler, hey, look, you have a hidden something. I want to make it more clear for the dog by breaking it down and saying, hey, this thing doesn't belong, but it's out in the open. And the things that you've looked for so far typically aren't out in the open or accessible. So they just move right along. It becomes easier to do. The it's the trained final response part. I'm, I'm, I'm circling in my head, like covering some of the things that you talked about there. Um, it's It seems to be in groups like and what i mean by groups is there are certain segments of the training population those i would say train with professionals mostly really like a trained final response and there's tons of pros to that as well but when you're dealing with dogs that sometimes are you know very used to communication and a collaboration with their handlers are very in tune to their handlers and 
asking for responses or certain behaviors become more difficult, I guess, because it separates versus a dog who is very much in tune with their handler. So just simply looking at the handler is exactly all the handler needs to go, yes, there's something right here. It's a very easy process for a lot of dogs, whereas trying to make them sit still or lay down or stand or whatever the thing is, is actually harder because the next step of that is the duration. And that's when the handler goes, ooh, I don't know, is odor there? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. The When you've gone through that yourself in training, so what does... Does Disney have a trained final response? And then two, if so, how did you work your way through that to communicate to you that, hey, I found odor and stayed doing this here, in addition to, of course, the reward happening there from time to time? Because you clearly do both. You do a condition reinforcer. You do a marker, you know, clicker or word. Um, but you also, like you said, you've paid at source. So how did you go through deciding what was best as you moved through your training? I waited for Disney to somewhat give me a default response. Um, early on, we just did like, you know, what everybody's seen as far as building value to odor, paired, unpaired, whatever, add more uh, distraction distractors, uh, empty boxes, if you would, blinks. Um, and then I started the jackpot when he gave me uh, some type of duration. And so it was just more comfortable for him to go into a down. So when he did that, like I, I did not reward him for finding the odor, but if he gave me a down, I kind of gave him a jackpot. So then it became more likely that if he found an odor, he would just kind of skip the first step and be like, well, if I just go ahead and go into a down, then I know I'm gonna get paid big time. And so now it's just like, I think I found it that all of these uh, methods, if you would require some level of proofing though. Right. Because now it's like, is it just, he'll just be down and all over the place. It's just like, Hey, I see you down. And it's like, I need down plus association with source odor. Um, so again, back to that, that, that age old experience and practice and repetitions, but there is a certain level of, of proofing that you want to do because these dogs are smart and they're like, if I can get the, the desired, uh, outcome, which is, you know, ball or treat or whatever the reward is, uh, they might skip to that, especially early on. So I think the thing that you, the, the point you made about um, pacing and your training and not going too fast. I mean, it's really easy because if you turn on YouTube or, or you follow your favorite trainers, you, you know, you see the the end result. And and let's face it, with the power of editing, you you see a lot of the good results. I try to keep some bad ones in there when I'm doing like a video that's focused on like a I don't know, like a, like a, like a, like a training progression or something like that. So you can see like Disney, I, I put it out there, internet world, Disney is not perfect on every iteration. We have a lot of iterations to whereas it might be handler error. It might be me. Um, it might be that I'm not communicating something. Cause usually these dogs, like, honestly, if you present it correctly, you might be doing something. A lot of times it's not Disney's fault It's handler error. Um, but regardless, um, you, you definitely want to do some level of proofing, uh, and, and, and do that within control, right? Like I have certain goals. Like I don't, I don't want Disney to jump from, a uh, like the most we probably want to do is like, you know, maybe get into competition one day, but we're not necessarily seeking to be like the, the working dog at TSA. So now that you have your scope and you know what your goals are for you and your dog, what are the things you have to do to get to that level? Okay. So if, if, if you, if you're searching without distractions, maybe eventually you do have to up to distractions. You don't want to go too fast, but also you don't want to stay too long. As you've mentioned, um, 
on searching without distractions. Because if you go to a training area, there's going to be other dogs there. There's going to be noises. Um, and, and then try to keep it controlled. But in general, you're going to have to search outside of the quiet environment of your backyard. So the quicker you can get to that step and do some level of proofing, um, the more progression I think you're going to see. Absolutely. You, you know, it's, it's such a challenge sometimes to be aware of, oh, wow, I need to proof this now. How did you just give us an example of I love the fact that you brought in the the statement of when once Disney learned that downing was an important factor in this system, it progressed to how about I just down because that's such a common thing to happen. How did you or what did you do to navigate that? Just give us an example of a proofing exercise that you might have done as you did that. Um, that's something that we've done with the down. Um, well, one thing I know we've done is to, we, we actually moved to multiple odors as well. So building a little bit of duration with the dog. Um, so it's not that he wasn't rewarded for the down, but I didn't want to associate it with, we're all done. Like you found the, the hide and now you're just going to down all over the place. It was like, well, and you can also do, I wouldn't know the proper term for this right now, but um, y- you might reward with praise one time, but you give them like a, a different level a of variable reward, reward schedule. Reward. There you go. Very variable reward schedule on the next one. So we introduced a, a second odor in the area. So now there was all, we're playing to his drive a little bit. It's like, well, I don't want to spend necessarily too much time on this one because there might be something else or like, you know, I'll let him know when we're all done. I'll tell him we're all done. And then he knows it's like the end, but um. So that that kind of like was like, well, this might get me something and it might not, but I have enough trust in this relationship that eventually this is going to pay off. So he gave the behavior based on like focusing more on is this or is this not source odor? All right. She paid me or she gave me praise. Let's move on and let's find the next one. It's you, you hit the nail on the head of the bit, you know, using the fancy words, which is like I lowered my variables and the criteria wasn't too hard, but the criteria was clear. So a lot of times when people reach out, I'm sure to you, and I, I get it too, with how do I solve this problem? Well, the first thing I got to do is bring it down to a very simple concept. Like, for example, there may be two pipes or two boxes in my space. One has odor, one does not. Mm-hmm. And then, therefore, the dog has to choose the correct one and the correct behavior and then reinforcement happens. And with discrimination basically happening, like this one means not, if you do it over here, the blank one, you're getting nothing. But if you go over here and the right answer isn't very far away, they can get rewarded. And then it starts to crystallize. They're like, oh, okay, if this thing's here. But as soon as they figure that, you've got to change your variable again. But again, it is still, it's in a simple context. So again, maybe it's two things, but I move the two things to different spots. The dog does it again and then starts going, oh, okay, definitely odor, definitely no matter where it's at, and you want this thing to happen. And then we can progress to, okay, let's put multiple things out where it becomes a little bit longer in time for the dog to sniff each thing to find the right one. Or as I increase the number of things, I might also have a distraction odor there, and then the dog goes, well, it's not that one, it's this one. And that really helps out a lot of times 
Uh, I think we just want to fix the problem in whatever training situation we're in. And for example, if you're in a normal type of search where there's doors and drawers and cabinets and so forth, the, there's too many variables in play. And therefore, it's hard for the dog to figure out which variable was the important one and which variables to disregard. So I always recommend if you're wanting to problem solve, bring it down to a simple context low variables in the criteria is pretty easy and clear and then reward and then build some uh, robustness to that behavior. And then, like you said, I can do duration there too. I can say, stay there for a couple seconds. I can, whatever I want to do, but the context is simple and the right answer isn't hard to find. And then that really, really helps. So you did, you kind of described basically that with, like you said, with a scientific words not thrown in with like, which is great because Again, we run into um, – it's tough for me because I came I – jo- I joke around. like I come from the knuckle-dragger dog, you know, cop world where we didn't use complicated words. We didn't do that. And then I fell into the science world and everything is big, complicated words. And now I'm like stuck in this middle land where I use those fancy terms. And then at the same time, I'm trying to relate, hey, just make it easy enough and clear enough and, re- and reward based off of that. And – The other part, before I forget, I really liked, I did it myself the other day, is sharing our errors as people who share information, sharing the errors because those trials and tribulations that we go through as, like you said, it's not perfect. It's never perfect. But what we always see on social media or everywhere else, oh, look how amazing and perfect my dog is. And it's so far from we we really have to do more of sharing those errors because that to me is where people learn i and i experienced that when i was i was training in front of a group of brand new people and they had a dog that i had obviously had never worked with before didn't know anything about it but i was problem solving it trying to help them with the detection issue that they had and I'm struggling for a little while. I'm like pushing this button and pushing that button on the dog, trying to figure out what was the thing that would work. And finally, I figured it out. And we got to the point where I felt happy enough to end that session. And then the people were like, oh, my gosh, that was the best session ever. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was I was struggling there for a while. And they're like, no, that was the best for us. I learned so much as you were trying to solve all those, you know, you were going through your little list in your head. And you're like, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. And you found the thing that you were looking for, and it worked. So the goal going forward is to share more of those sessions because, you know, we're all normal. You know, just because, you know, we sit in a position of influence or we use social media more than maybe other people do, it doesn't mean that automatically our dogs are perfect. Man, I I go through – I can't – like. I was just doing stuff yesterday and I'm like, oh, this is so difficult. So what would you say as you progressed was one of the hardest things you went through with Disney as you, it doesn't even have to be detection, but if, if you want to keep it detection, but what was something that you as a trainer with your dog struggled with that tested you pretty hard? Um, I think, um, well, for me, I think it was just changing dynamics. Um, if everything remains the same, um, then generally you can just kind of progress on a glide path. But our family grew um, and Disney was our fur baby first. He was here first before any little people were, were rolling around. Um, so 
so I mean, they're uh, the name of my podcast is the Dogs Are People Too podcast, and it's kind of like a you know they have feelings and like can you imagine going from having all of this attention and it's not that he's neglected by any means, but uh, the the children definitely take some time, and so I was dealing with balancing that and getting in, I guess. Uh, taking 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 time for opportunity training because um, it wasn't just as dedicated. I used to spend like we'd 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 go we do frisbee for however long he get tired we take a break and then you know we go out later that day. Like I could spend like it wasn't consecutive, but we we'd spend a good portion of Saturday just either playing and training through play or or like just just way more uh, mass time. And I guess it, it became more space repetition. Um, but that works. So I, I learned something. Um, if you do not have the, I guess, consecutive time, and honestly, there's a lot of studies that show that these longer duration training sessions really aren't necessarily as effective as say space repetition, no different than, than humans. Uh, there's a, there's a book called, um, make it stick. And the concept in there is a lot about space repetition and they do some studies on, uh, folks going through medical school and like, Hey, the folks who did like four lessons in a row on a certain type of surgery and did the experience right after ended up popping some blood vessels beyond repair or something on the, on the folks versus the people who took a class one week, uh, for uh, the duration of a month actually did better on some of these tests and these different surgeries. And it's no different, uh, than our dogs. And it's also been some studies in the dog world that have shown, that uh, a little play after your training sessions can help with strengthening the neurons when it comes to uh, long-term memory and retention for your dog. So I, there are no hacks, but I started to train a lot more deliberately based on the time I had available. And taking advantage of opportunity training or secondary training sessions, however you want to call it, like some folks refer to it as primary training or mass training when you're like, just go back to like foundational obedience training. You know, you're, you might be in a group setting or you might be by yourself, but you're working on down, you're working on sit, you're working on whatever these primary behaviors are that eventually flow into something very, very specific versus opportunity training, uh, food fell on the ground, but you in a primary uh, training session earlier, you, you, you worked on whatever you're phrases, leave it or whatever. But now it just happened in real time. So taking advantage of those things and having your treat deposits, if you would, available to reward or whether that's a yes or it's just praise and a nice pet. Um, so I really started to place a lot more emphasis on those types of things. So I found that I was able to maintain a certain level. It still wasn't necessarily as strong. So when I wanted to do something deliberate, I would definitely up the training uh, frequency and time. But that helped me a lot adjusting to changes in our environment. So that was a big challenge for, for me. For me. Yeah, I can imagine. Now the, you, what we talked about a second, a little bit ago was you actually use a marker condition reinforcer. How did you find that? And describe a little bit of your journey as how you introduce that into your scent work stuff. Yeah, I, I, I mean, dogs aren't people, but I equate them a lot to children because they do a lot of similar things. And I find myself talking to my dog in a certain way and he, it's, it's a different type of yes. Like if you ask me a yes or no question, I don't respond to you with yes, you know, but that's the yes for, uh, for Disney. And he knows, I mean, it might as well be the marker, but it's pretty consistent. It's usually the same. Yes. Every time. I don't know when I started it, but like, so whatever your marker is and you always have your voice with you. I mean, assuming you can speak. So, um, 
I, I do have a clicker. I've used that more as like concept and he knows what the clicker means. Um, but I always have my voice. It's in the park. It's here. And I want him to have some value to my voice anyway, as being a reforcer for positive things. Um, so that's how that started. It started really young and very natural. And it was like, I was actually just really excited. I really think that's how it happened. Like we were doing puppy training and you know, a lot of stuff with puppies is just like shaping and moving around. Like they don't know they're doing a sit or a down. It's more like just a lot of luring and stuff like that. And when he would do a good job and I'd be like, yes. And we just kept that up. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so I started saying, for duration, right? So I started doing good. So whatever, everybody has their own terminology, but he knows that good is more like, we're going to continue to do this thing, but you're on the right track. So I'd be like, good. And like, especially when we're working on duration for like a, a sit stay or something, I'd walk around um, with the leash around him and he's looking at me if, if that's a thing we're working on, but he couldn't move. Um, then eventually I'd say yes. And then we'd have a, we'd have a release. And so, cause I would usually want him to come back into the hill. So I'd, I'd say, yes, he'd come. And then we kind of, he'd kind of like go back around and pivot and then he'd be there by my side. So, um, yeah, whatever your, your marker is, just be consistent with it. So he's usually looking for that when he does a good thing. Um, and then I use good if, if we're not done necessarily. Um, and then like my release, like when we're kind of done, done is like, okay, um, some people do free cause most, a lot of things in life aren't free, but, uh, that, that's, that's our main stuff. We do yes, good. And okay. Did you, so you just found yours by just your natural interaction with your dog. You didn't necessarily go into it with like, I read this book or I saw this video and then I wanted to go implement it. You just adapted what your relationship was naturally with your dog. Does that sound correct? Uh, yes. And I just knew, I guess I, the only research I did was that I needed to be consistent in whatever I chose. Yep. It was funny. The, my journey with it was, I was at the time I was stationed in, I was working in Texas basically in uh, San Antonio and there's SeaWorld there. And I was, I had lived there for maybe, no, not quite a year. And I started dating. Well, this girl I was dating at the time was a uh, SeaWorld trainer. And she came out, was watching us do detection. And then, of course, she asked me, like, you know, why we were doing some of the things that we were doing. And I was, my answer was because we've always done it that way. I didn't know anything different. And then she had shown me, uh, so she had me do some exercises with this with a, a green wing macaw that she had. And it showed me a little bit about, what, what a condition reinforcer was. But at the same time, Michael Ellis was having his videos were coming out and he was using condition reinforcers with uh, obedience and things like that. And I remember looking at those videos going, wow, you know, this does make sense for detection. So mine became, mine was a much more of a formal, like I had to learn it separately. And then I brought it into the dog stuff. And then deeper into the years, I had, yes, was mine for many, many years. That was my condition reinforcer. And then we were doing some training um, with a specialized group I was with. And we said, oh, well, the problem, like you just mentioned, well, we say yes in a lot of things. And though it wasn't exactly the same, we wanted to create a very different thing. And we used, for us, free was the marker. Mm -hmm. Um Good was like you said, duration, keep doing that thing. Um, and then okay was you were released and you were done. So, it, it, the whole point I'm making here is to, for people that are listening and watching is it doesn't matter what the word is, as long as what you said is the key part, be consistent about it. And there is that great debate about oh, a mechanical device such as a clicker or a whistle versus our words. The if you 
people will get very, you know, will stand behind a point and that point being, well, the mechanical device is consistent the same every single time where your inflection could be different. And okay, at face value, I agree. Yes, those things can be, yes, mechanical devices are consistent and my word could fluctuate a little bit. But the point you made, which is the main reason why we didn't use a clicker or we had whistle for something special later on but the reason why we didn't use a mechanical device was because we were humans and we were bound to forget it or as mechanical it could break and if that happened what did we do now so just like you said that word is always with us i always have it i won't forget it in the car it's not left in a bag at home it's always there with us so those that are deciding or using this episode to kind of you know think about what should I do? Should I do this? Should I not do this? Do what works for your dog. But I can promise you, you do have a condition reinforcer already built in. And those in the scent work and nose work world, that condition reinforcer that currently exists is the word alert. When you say alert, many of those dogs have already associated that usually this is reward is happening next because that's what's happened all the time in your training. So what I end up ha- helping a lot of people with who have want to use a condition reinforcer now is we will use a condition reinforcer and proof the word alert. So I can say alert doesn't mean leave or do anything, just keep doing what you're doing. But when you hear free or yes, you can then leave or I can come all the way up to you and reward you there and say that right as I deliver that. And, and, and just like you talk about, I proof the movement of the handler up, you know, walking up to the dog, walking back, and the dog just learns, I will stay here until I hear that signal. And regardless of where the handler's position is, because many situations we could be in different spots, or maybe if you're competing, it's not, you're not in the best position. So you, it's very helpful to have it where the dog can come to you. That way, you, if the dog understands, already has the concept of, Odor is already important. Odor is a place where I keep my position until I hear this word. There's so much, there's a lot of availability or options for you to have as a handler if you have that consistency. Where now in the sport world, it's not too hard. You can walk up and reward in almost every situation I can think of, which is why it's so, it's such a, a caught on uh, technique, which is to walk up and feed at the source. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. The only thing is, as we both know, some people who may compete, you may run the risk of a fault if you dropped your food there or something like that. So I, I, as a trainer, like options like you. I like having both those things, and I can do both those things. It's just a matter of communicating to the dog that if I'm walking up, it doesn't always mean I'm rewarding you there. If I'm standing back, it doesn't always mean I'm going to call you, I'm going to mark you and call you back to me. Just keep doing the behavior, whatever it is, and we will do this. So um, it, it's it's cool to see other trainers, you know, because in a world that we're in now, especially it's it, it seems like there's a natural tendency to we have to stick to one thing. Like I'm in this camp and you're in that camp. Why can't I do a couple of things for, and focus on the camp of what works best for my dog? Yes. You know? Would have is is there something unique in your journey that you found that you said, you know what, this is what works for my dog, or this is what works best for me? Is there anything that you can reflect on? You look at and go, this is why I picked this for me and my dog because it was so powerful or it was so important for my dog. 
Um, well, I just tried to play to what my dog gave me naturally. I mean, I, I was definitely, ch- I mean, there's some things that we trained that I just wanted to look cool. There was nothing beyond, I mean, did I really want an indication? Nah, but it looks great. It looks great. I mean, because like, like we talked about earlier, there's so many of those natural things. If you just read your dog, um, they'll tell you what's going on. But I, I, I have no qualms with people who want to see that pristine indication. And I, I mean, he's not like a perfect freeze. But like I said, my dog does default to like the, the, the down position um, if he's found source odor. Um, but we, the biggest thing that worked for our dog is, is Disney's actually a very playful dog. Um, and so we can't take things too seriously. And, and another, when we found ourselves, when you're saying, and how we got into like scent work, we did do Frisbee very early on because I mean, big dog like Disney, he can run out, go get it, come back, bring it back. I got two Frisbees and then it became a thing. And it was really easy to get them, get them, get them exercised pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but obviously he could not see the Frisbee if it dropped in like a big, uh, field of high grass, the, the way he was finding the Frisbee was with his nose. Um, and so we leveraged play a lot to build on some of these scent work concepts. So not only was the dog getting exercise, I mean, it wasn't always Frisbee, but if I could find a way to incorporate play, um, with, with some objective I had in scent work, I would, I would try to do those things. Do you use toy at all in your detection with him or you, do you stay pretty much it's food all the time. I like toy, but his, he, he, he really loves to tug. Uh, so it's sometimes it's hard. Uh, I know some folks do like the ball release. Um, so I haven't spent a lot of time on that, but I like to try that. But his favorite, like most desired thing to do is tug. And we do a lot of tug. Uh, but it's, it's hard. I feel like his drive almost gets too hard or too high rather with, with toy. Um, so, I mean, he's food motivated, but not to the point where I can't get him to come off or we can't move on to the next thing, but he is super motivated by, by toy. So I almost use toy as like, uh, at the, at the end, like, okay, we're all done. Let's release the stress or whatever. I mean, he's not stressed, but like, you know, we're done with that serious thing we were doing. Let's, let's move on and just bond. Um, I I think, I just think for him, he gets too excited. (laughs) Yeah. That's a excellent point. It's one of the ones that I have to share for both sides, professional and sport, which is utilizing both toy and food can be really powerful. Um, like you mentioned, food is really good for the learning stages where there's lots of repetition and the dog doesn't become overly excited or aroused because of the toy. Um, where conversely, if you're using a toy as your main reward item, Usually within two or three repetitions, the dog has become so excited and so, oh my gosh, I got my favorite thing that they kind of lose their mind and they become what I, what I share in the cognition classes, less mentally flexible because they're so excited. So therefore the learning kind of goes out the window, but you, you stole the words right out of my mouth. What I like to do is it's food, food, food. And then the last repetition is toy to really kind of, um, explode like this is such a fun thing we had we really enjoyed ourselves and what we also got out of that was the ability to have such a pleasurable experience for the dog for the dogs to go this was so fun the memory in the what i got out of this really connects now for some dogs you don't have to use um toys some dogs just that's toys just don't motivate them 
So like you mentioned earlier, a higher volume of food or maybe their favorite piece of food is the way you end that session with. So for those that are listening and watching, this is one of the things that you can have available to you is a variable reinforcement type. Um, If you always use, let's say, little pieces of food, well, that's good. But if you can vary it up, that expectation of hope of I might get my favorite thing in most cases is going to bring up the work in the dog. So whether it be the toy being introduced randomly or predictably near the end, um, the most important thing is find what works and keeps your dog in that right, proper learning um, stage, that, that bell curve. There's a thing called the Yerkes Dodson law, which is like a bell curve. And at the top of the bell curve is the optimal learning point. Too low of motivation, the dog isn't learning. Too high of motivation, the dog is anxious or has too much anxiety. And that's not optimal either. So that finding that sweet spot for you and your dog is right where you want to be. And each dog's sweet spot is different than the other ones. There could be very, very close, but there also can be very different. Um, so I love the fact, again, there's another point where you were, both of us look at the mindset of being a flexible trainer, finding the things that work. Versus going off of, well, I'm only following what this camp says or I'm only following what this organization does um, because it just may not – I think some of the frustration people have is I followed – you know, just put in X, Y, or Z. I followed this and it doesn't work for my dog. That makes total sense because not every dog is the same. So we need to be adaptable for our dogs. So I, I really like that you do that. I wanted to ask too, who – who did you who was a big influence on you early on as you were kind of going down your journey with uh nose work and scent work were there certain things that were really attractive to you or or certain things that that were you were drawn to certain ways that information was shared whether it be a, another influencer or um a book you read or a video you watched kind of thing um yeah yeah uh, one of my first guests on my podcast was uh Jeremy uh from Family First K9 uh, he also has a, a, a law enforcement uh, background as far as working with 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 working dogs uh, as well. But I I, I mean, I don't want to shun that community because, I mean, there's a lot to be said for a professional working dog and the things you have to do to train a dog to to to, to be that obedient and um, also very, very great and loyal to their handlers. Like, obviously, they have a working job to do, but those are some just great dogs like off duty right so like like let's not demonize our working dogs but the ability to communicate some of those great lessons learned from being out and about with your dog and seeing all those different types of reactions and different scenarios and being able to work through distractions there's a lot to be said about bringing some of those those best practices into the sport dog community not to make a sport dog a working dog um but to 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 melt the two together, if you would, as far as just, just wisdom, right. And bringing that together. And and he's somebody who's, who's been able to do that. Um, you know, not looking down necessarily on folks who just want to pet and do something fun. I mean, I, I, I went back to like setting your goals. So I really appreciate trainers who see you in your space, meet you where you're at. And like, these are the, do- the, the goals I have for me and my pet. Perhaps it's just activity. Uh, cause just exercising your dog is great. Um, some, some dogs need more mental stimulation than others or they're tear up your house. Uh, but a, a, a tired dog is a good dog and, and not like, you know, just like, oh my gosh, my dog's running like whatever. But I mean, like a lot of times a good, a, a good solution to a lot of your problems is like a nice walk 
and your dog's fine. Like a lot of times if I can't get, you know, focus, I'll be like, did I really properly exercise my dog today? Um, and then all of a sudden now he's focused, right? We've had our run, he's had his meal. Um, he's, he's ready to work for a little while. Um, so, so he's, he's somebody that I've seen. I've actually looked and taken lessons from, uh, other trainers who aren't even necessarily in the, in the canine scent work space, even some agility trainers and just listening to like, not necessarily specifically what they're doing to get better at that sport, but the discipline and the approach that they take to training their dog in general. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, is it, what's his last name? It's, it's not Schumer. Is it Nate? But he has a great, is it Schumer? Uh, dog training, uh, a scent work uh, series. Uh, I think it's a little bit dated now, like a year or so ago uh, or more. But it's, it's a great series. Um, and I think he was using the concrete bricks um, just outside. I love seeing trainers that don't necessarily have a lot of equipment. There's a lot to be said for having equipment. And I've looked at some of those scent work walls and everything. I just personally don't have like the space uh, in my home. But if you can go to like a group training session and like leverage some of that equipment, it's it's all great stuff. So I don't, I don't knock it. But uh, I looked at stuff that kind of mirrored what can I replicate? What are some best practices I can use and take? I, that's what I like. I like talking to different trainers and taking um, what works for us um, and not necessarily being I mean, it's okay to have standards, um, but I'm not so closed minded about what I'm doing to like, you know, that might work. Uh, or if we're working through a certain problem set, like I'm trying to get past this barrier. Cause like, depending on where you are in your, in your journey, um, you might have to problem solve through to get to the next peak, if you would, right? Like the, the problems that you have working multiple odors are going to be slightly different than the problems you would have working a single source odor. So um, I, I've, I've adopted some of those principles, actually just from a number of trainers, almost cross-training, if you would, yeah. uh, virtually uh, for, for some folks that come to mind. It's, I, I so because this is my living I have lots of the toys and the gadgets and the things like that because part of it was me doing testing on stuff. Second part was my own interest in things. Third part was some tools were really useful. But I cannot agree more with the fact of be creative. Use what you can get your hands on and implement that because that's better than thinking that the only way you can train is if you had some kind of fancy odor wheel or you know you feel you're limited because you didn't have those perfect boxes that you saw somewhere the if you can just be creative and think of your environment and get something that's easy to get your hands on you can use so many things in fact the more creative you can be sometimes actually is really helpful for your dog versus you, you technology uh, having you know an odor wheel is, is a cool thing but i can also get dogs too used to that it's the same thing i've seen the other thing where brick walls are a big popular thing it's the same thing as we mentioned earlier if i stay in that thing for too long whatever it is the dog becomes more rigid to that's how we play this game or this is I understand it under this context. So the creativity is such an amazing thing. The more creative you are, you kind of look in your environment. What can you get your hands on? What can you expose your dog to? Will really make a big difference in your detection work for sure. Because that's truly what's going to happen. Odor is going to be presented to the dog in all kinds of crazy ways. It's not going to be really nice and pristine or in this kind of, you know, I call it an easier context, but a 
repeatable context of the different things we've already mentioned. Um, but being creative gets the dog to go, ooh, odor can be like this and then like that. And it does it moves this way because of this type of container or vessel or containment. So I, I love it. Be have people be just be creative, think things through. Um, again, always start off simple, then get more complex with, with it, with what you're doing, whatever it is. But that, yeah, that's, uh, um, such an important factor. I want people to always think about, just like you mentioned, be creative, think, work with what you get your hands on easily. The, um, the other thing is I wanted to ask, what would you, because being an influencer or having your, your site and your pay, I'm sorry, in your channel, what are things that you get asked the most and give us an example of a, a how you respond or what's the piece of advice that you give to people the most often? Yeah. You know, a, a lot of questions like folks, it's, it's funny. We just talked about this. A lot of questions that people ask me is what is my training philosophy or like, who am I like aligning a hundred percent with? And I don't have any qualms with necessarily any specific trainers or anything, but I, I really like to preface preface, especially like go back to why I started my channel. Like this is what works for my dog. And then along the way, um, I respect the, I'm gonna say profession enough to start learning a little bit of the science behind it. Um, so, you know, when I'm responding, I do try to do a little bit of research. Like, I mean, this isn't just something I just like made up, like there, there's some principles, there's some science behind these things. And then, oh, by the way, I've tried to overlay that with how I've applied that to my sessions with my German Shepherd dog, Disney, this worked for me and it might work for you. Um, but this worked for me and I'm going to show you, I'm going to document, I'm going to show as I grow. Uh, and then I answer the question. Um, but because I've had a couple of niche, uh, topics, I've gotten, uh, questions about applying canine scent work to, uh, to, to finding truffles in a truffle rich environment. I've gotten questions about, uh, applying scent work in the, um, in the medical field, if you would, towards like, uh, alerting towards, uh, uh, seizures or, or, uh, different, uh, glucose levels and things of that nature. Um, not necessarily from a medical perspective, because I am not a doctor, but from a, a principal perspective of how does that even work? Like, how are those dogs trained? And honestly, regardless of the job, you'll find if you do a little research that the imprinting stage is generally the same. Um, it has to be a lot more controlled because obviously in certain situations, that indication could be you know, have, have, have some different set of consequences, right? Whether or not you find birch anise clove cypress is perhaps not as critical, uh, to knowing whether or not you're about to have a seizure or not, you know, arguably. So, uh, we definitely want to make sure that those dogs understand like, oh, okay, they've listened or they've, they've imprinted that dog on a certain amount of sweat samples or, uh, different blood samples or whatever the dog's job is to proof that behavior. I know Penn State, uh, has a, has a great research department that does a lot with dogs in the medical field. Um, there's a, there's a book, what is it? Dr. Dogs, um, how dogs are doing something or another, but basically in the book, they talk about some of these applications and how dogs are being used in that. And I know during, um, during the pandemic period, we had a lot of dogs like outside of, uh, the stadium where the, uh, the Miami heat play, uh, that were actually 
detecting for, uh, for, for the COVID virus, actually, for folks in line. So I get asked a lot of questions just like, I won't say one-off, but I think because I've got a couple of videos that dive into to some of the more, more uh, researchy type things, folks ask me, and I get curious. I'm just naturally curious about these things. And then I learn as well by doing a little bit of research about how are some of these dogs trained. And then I've tried to, with the podcast, reach out to some of these folks. And it's amazing that a lot of them are willing to talk about their experiences and how they train the dogs to do such amazing work. Yeah. The next thing I wanted to go before we wrap it up was what inspired you to create your channel? How did you come about doing that? And then what, and because I don't know what came first, the YouTube channel or the podcast? Um, so inspired, uh, I just knew for a really long time I wanted a German shepherd dog. Um, and then initially it started because I was doing, I mean, I still do this to this day, uh, pet photography and videography. Um, and the best way to get better at editing is to edit. So I combined two things that I wanted to do together. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I stimulated my dog, you know, mentally and physically, and then document that along the way. And then because I had to post the videos, I needed to edit them. So it was kind of meta, but I was able to get after all the objectives that I had. Um, and then slowly we saw the production value improve because it, that's just what happened. So keep at it, regardless of what you're at. If you just do more repetitions of it, uh, it's hard yeah, not, not to get better. Um, so, so that was the inspiration behind it. I just wanted to share my experience that I was having with my dog uh, and document that along the way and also get in a little bit of editing practice. Uh, so it meld all the things together. And then, yeah, so the YouTube channel came first. Um, and then we started the podcast. I, I feel it was, was it 2020? I feel like 2020, 21. Definitely, definitely part of it was, was, I feel like its infancy was during the lockdown, but a little bit before. So 2019, 2020. Um, and yeah, I just started reaching out to really just dog trainers, even in my community. I reached out to uh, pet photographers as well. Um, I, part of the tagline in there is bringing you the best tips, strategies, and technologies for pet parents. Um, so some of my interests, right? I like the the introduction of tech in, in, in pet training. I mean, we might as well leverage it. I mean, I don't think we have to go overboard, but like there are some advantages and some things we can do to build some efficiency. So, so why not, um, let folks be aware of some of the things that are out there. Um, and I love hearing different perspectives in the dog, dog training community. As you said, sometimes it can be very, uh, I won't say it can be very divisive, but sometimes folks are, are, are polar. We want to bring those communities together, some of those best ideas together. And, in, and anytime you can get trainers together and talking about, you know, what works, uh, you might see some overlaps there uh, and, and just be able to develop even an appreciation um, for some of the things um, you, we may be, less knowledgeable about. So really it's just awareness, a love for canine scent work and, you know, playing to some of those things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. What would you say has been also really inspiring for you by having these formats to, uh, share information with, um, has there been something that you're like, I'm, this is what really makes me happy. I'm, I'm so glad I've done this because of, yeah, I mean, I, it sounds so cliche, but hearing the stories, um, folks will post and they'll be like, I tried X, Y, and Z and, you know, it worked for me. And I'm like, wow, that 
that's great. That's great. And um, I mean, I, I try to stay humble in this. So I don't think I did anything magical. Like the, the, there's one thing about information. It's it's out there now. So we're not revealing any secrets. Like if, if you want to get it, go out and get it. Um, but perhaps the way we're communicating it um, to our communities is resonating with them. And that's why they return. Um, so that's always very humbling. And I really appreciate folks sharing their success stories uh, along their, as I call it, their scent work journey um, with, with their pups. And um, it's great for the dogs. It's great for the handlers and it's great for us as a team. So I think that's what brings me the most joy is just hearing when some of the things that we put out into the world really resonate with folks and they're, they're getting some value out of it. Has there been anything that's been surprising to you once you started this journey as a, uh, uh, in social media and having platforms? Has there been like, holy cow, I never, th- that totally surprises me. I wouldn't have thought that would have worked or whatever it is. Um, I've been, I've been a little surprised by the outreach. I've had some, uh, some different folks reach out to me. You know, I've had, uh, I mean, uh, just being on this podcast, I mean, the fact that anybody's asking me to talk about this subject, you know, I very, very humbled by it, but I mean, I've, I've worked, uh, with Scentwork University as well, one of the largest online platforms for Scentwork, uh, like webinars and, and online training and, and things of that nature, and, and talk to some of the founders of of some of these uh, smaller Scentwork organizations, um, like literally just reaching out. And they're like, yeah, we'd love to talk to you about the rules and regulations and how we form this this community. And I mean, even other uh, opportunities potentially for like documentaries and things of that nature. So I have been surprised by the potential opportunities that are out there and the folks that, uh, that find you, if you would. Mm -hmm. And as we wrap it up, what is a piece of advice, or maybe you can give a couple pieces of advice to some, to somebody who's listening or watching that's in the detection community, what's something you would say, yeah, this is some advice I have for you. Don't get overwhelmed. Set some goals for you and your dog and, and what you want to get out of it. Uh, the, 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 scent, the sport of scent work started from the working dogs, right? And we, and we brought it into the recreational space. You don't have to turn your recreational dog into a working dog. But if you have a working dog, then work your dog. It's okay. Um, but, but set your goals and stay on your path. And if the, the training doesn't align with your goals, then perhaps that's not what you should be working on. And it's okay. And just be comfortable with that. I think I think folks just have to be comfortable with this is what I want to get out of uh, my relationship with my dog. And as long as you're happy and your dog is happy, it's okay. Absolutely. There's there's no rush. Enjoy the process. That's I, I share that a lot because like you like we talked about numerous times here already is the human nature side of things sometimes whether it be the the hive collective, the groups that you're with do these things and you want to be a part of that, but maybe your dog just isn't ready. And one of the things that I took this past year being around some of the people that I uh, get exposed to was we move at the pace the dog gives us permission. And I was like, wow, that's that, that really makes a lot of sense um, because sometimes it becomes too easy to move at the pace I want to go or the pace that my friends are doing it. And I see their dogs progressing, but wow. Or I get a good session and I want to jump further because of that one good session. And we just weren't there yet. And then when problems develop, we were wondering where did it come from? Well, it came from sometimes, you know, we just go too fast. So, 
uh, you're right. It's the process. It's the journey. That's the that's the fu- really fun part of this. Is at the end of the day, we're doing something our dogs love doing and get a lot of enjoyment out of, and you get to experience that with your dog. I mean, other than I would say having kids and things like that, that's the next parallel is to be with another species and do something together and understand each other. That is so amazing. So I, re- I really uh, I connect to what you said there because that's such an important thing, and I hope a lot of people connect to that as well when they hear that. So I'm also super excited to let people know that uh, you and I will be doing some webinars here in the near future. We will have those posted once we, you and I have already talked about some topics, so we won't let the cat out of the bag yet, but we'll, once we, we've got a couple in mind and we'll get the thing going. Um, so, because uh, again, I really love the information that you share. I think you're such a talented uh, individual in how you share information and you're so, it's easy to connect with you because you are like just everybody else. We love doing some stuff with our dogs and it's relatable and I can feel myself in the position that you're in. And because of that, it makes it so much easier to learn from you. And so thank you for doing all the things that you've done in this community. I, like I said, from the beginning, I've been an admirer of the work that you do. So keep doing it. I look forward to collaborating with you and I can't thank you enough for taking the time off of your schedule to come on here and share some of this information, and we have lots more to go ahead. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, everybody, this concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.